We invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. We're in our series, Jesus in Depth, and, um, and uh, Mark 9 is full of Jesus in depth. It's full of his teaching on the upside-down ways of the kingdom of God. And indeed, Jesus has this counterintuitive way of doing life, and he, in here in verses of 42 through 50, he brings the goods on what that counterintuitive life looks like with him with a series of provocative warnings and demands that allow even more clearly what it means to follow him. So believing God has spoken, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Starting in verse 42, Jesus has been teaching his disciples, and this is what else he says. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone, who will be, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask you now to speak to us. Open our eyes. Help us to see what it really means to follow you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, we, uh, in the English language, we have an idiom to describe something that's really expensive. We typically say it costs an arm and a leg, right? And uh, at least one time in recent history, that, ended, that idiom ended up being literally true in April of 2003, Aaron Ralston was climbing in Blue John Canyon in the Canyonlands of Utah. And while he was climbing down a rock face, a boulder dislodged, landing on his hand and crushing it. Even worse, the boulder uh, pinned his arm against the rock wall. Now, Ralston suddenly realized that uh, he would probably be there a while since he had told no one where he was going. So for five days and 127 hours, Ralston stayed there, stuck against the wall. He started to ration his food and water, and after three days of trying to lift or break apart the boulder, he became delirious with exhaustion and dehydration. And finally, at one point, he realized on day four that he would have to do the radical thing to live, amputate his own arm. He experimented with tourniquets while cutting his flesh, but he soon realized his biggest problem would be cutting through his own bone. So on the fifth day, 
he decided he would break his own arm through leverage. He did it. He did it freeing himself after five days and losing 40 pounds in 25% of his blood. Now, is it, as if that wasn't enough, he had to take an eight-mile trek back to his car. And that trek started by rappelling 65 feet down the rock face one-handed. Happily, at about a six-mile mark, he encountered a family hiking who took care of him, calling for a helicopter, helicopter to help. Now, what's interesting about this experience for Aaron Ross is in the wake of his life-threatening experience, Ralston later said that he had a sense of invincibility that actually led him into more risk-taking behavior, and that more risk-taking behavior ended up affecting his relationships. And he admitted that the loss of his arm, instead of leading him to more risky behavior, should have actually humbled him. In other words, Aaron Ralston lost his arm, but it took a little while longer to lose his ego. Losing our ego. And losing our ego in humility is precisely what Jesus is getting at today in Mark chapter 9. And after the grand experience of the transfiguration earlier in the chapter, after Jesus' own teaching, even the healing, a radical healing of a, of a boy possessed by a demon... We find Jesus teaching his disciples the importance of what it means to follow him with humility. Uh, as a result, he's been telling his disciples these crazy upside-down things like the first will be last and the last will be first. And in our text today, Jesus keeps pressing this upside-down teaching towards humility in a series of even wilder sayings that get our attention, and get our attention about how we handle relationships, fundamentally with God, but also with one another. So, what are the upside-down principles of humility that we should practice in relationship here in our text? Well, Jesus takes a shot at the ego with a very shocking warning starting in verse 42. Look at that with me. He says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now let's remember where we are real quick here in the text. Back in chapter 8, Jesus told the disciples that following him requires some radical stuff like cross-bearing. If you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. In chapter 9, he's challenging the disciples' sense of self-importance and ambition to power by telling them they must be the servant of all and receive the least of these, and even partner with others who, who claim allegiance to Jesus in his name. In other words, Jesus has been saying, hey guys, don't play power games as individuals or as a group of Christians, serve in humility. Here in verse 42, Jesus continues that theme of humility by warning the disciples that anyone who causes little ones to sin, uh, to sin will be in serious danger. Now, when Jesus says, cause little ones to sin, what does that mean? Well, little ones would be another way to describe children, uh, more specifically, children of God, who trust in Christ alone by faith 
and seek to do good in his name. Someone who apparently blocks believers from believing or doing good in Jesus' name, or even worse, leads them into sin, is actually doing the opposite of humble service in the name of the Lord. In fact, verse 2 is really about spiritual leadership and spiritual influence. Now, of course, that applies acutely to pastors like me. Uh, It applies to elders and deacons. It applies to ministry leaders. And i got to say, it certainly applies to those who would call themselves followers of Christ in the marketplace or even in the home as parents. How does this exhortation then apply to us and our relationships today? Well, this is clearly a loving but firm warning to all kinds of leaders that we're going to be judged by our actions and the fruit of our works. This is addressing things like unethical behavior that influences people, abuse of power, dare I say it, sexual abuse in the Me Too movement, by powerful people. And I have to say, all of these things even show up in the church sometimes, sadly. But it also applies to another danger I want to highlight today, a common danger that's rising up in our culture today. And it's called the danger of censoriousness. Censoriousness. What in the world is censoriousness? Well, censoriousness is being severely critical and and usually by an unreasonable standard so that you find fault, overcorrect, or hypercritical with other people. There are two kinds of censoriousness that I would highlight today, and that would be religious censoriousness and cultural censoriousness. Religious censoriousness comes in the legalisms of don't do this, don't do that, with usually man-made laws rather than the law of God. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with women who do type thing, right? Now, censoriousness is the process of hunting down bad behavior, which can end up being a form of verbal or thought police in the church. Let's be clear, though. The verbal and thought police are not only in the church, but they're also in the culture at large. There is serious censoriousness going on around identity and sexuality these days, where overcorrection is happening relative to gender. Now, what people don't realize is that censoriousness of any kind binds the soul like a chain. Censoriousness, in other words, is soul-killing, especially when it empowers sin. Now, Jesus is crystal clear about the results of causing sin and killing the soul. He says that it would be better for that person if a millstone were placed around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. And you got to know, apparently this was a metaphor that was pretty common in Jesus' time because it had its origins in a real historic event. When the Romans took over Judea and Galilee decades earlier, uh, they took men who had rebelled against them out to the sea of Galilee, put millstones around their neck, threw them in. That actually had happened in history. But what is Jesus getting at by this historic metaphor? What's he getting at by this putting a millstone around the neck, cast and see, be better than if he did that? Well, what Jesus is doing, of course, here is he's using hyperbole. He is talking about, through hyperbole, the consequences of God's justice. 
And he goes on to describe what those consequences look like relative to God and something called hell. In verses 43, 45, and 47, he talks about people going to hell or being thrown into hell, the unquenchable fire and where the worm doesn't stop eating away. And when Jesus uses this imagery of hell, he, he's really combining metaphors in a lot of ways. I mean, one metaphor picture that he's implying is that of an ancient battlefield of defeat where bodies are strewn all over the place or maybe even being piled up and burned. He also uses uh, the word for hell here uh, is the word Gehenna. Gehenna is a place where they would burn trash outside of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus is using it here as an imagery to describe what it means to be taken outside the city where the life is and put in the trash heap to be burned. In other words, being thrown out into the fire is the imagery of exile from the city of God, of being removed from the life of the community in fire. Now that brings us, of course, to this controversial doctrine of hell. <laughs> I mean, what is hell? Well, hell is exile from the life of God into eternity. It's a place of constant defeat under God's judgment and wrath. I mean, we all experience everyday life in a business world or family life. Whatever we do, wins and losses. Some things go well, some things don't. Imagine eternity where it's all defeat. That's what hell is like. Now, no doubt, many today think hell as a judgment after death or wrath of some kind is a passe idea. It seems primitive. It seems like it's a fear-mongering thing. But here's the thing. The same Jesus who many people admire because of the amazing things he said about loving our neighbors and things like that, is the most prolific speaker about hell in the scriptures. I mean, Jesus talked about hell more than any other prophet in the scriptures. And why is that? Did he do it to scare people? Was he trying to say, hey, you better shape up or ship out? No. He's actually given warnings to love people. Look. Imagine someone is running towards a cliff as fast as they can, and you're watching this. Love is not standing there and watching and say, that poor idiot, what is he doing? He's crazy. He's going to run off that cliff. Now, that's what American culture does. We like watching and judging as people run off the cliff. But what real love does is it steps in the runner's way and says, stop, stop running towards the cliff. When Jesus speaks on hell, he is telling us to stop running towards a cliff. Now, for those who think this hell thing is silly, I mean, I understand I wasn't a Christian all of my life. I had similar thoughts. But here's what I'd ask you. Do you want justice to come in the world? I mean, ultimate justice. Do you see men like Hitler or Saddam Hussein or now Putin? Do you see him getting away with mass murder and think, I wish that guy would get his because even the best efforts of justice in the world, he's not getting what his is. 
You know what that means? That means you believe in hell. You want hell. You want justice. And here's a further frightening thought. If hell actually isn't real, that means there's no end game justice in the world. None. And then my question would be is this. Why should we be moral? Why should we love? Why should we do anything? Just live for yourself. Because there are no ultimate consequences. Why do good? It's not going to make a difference anyway, right? See, when Jesus is teaching about hell, he's teaching about how God will actually issue justice in the end, making the good worth fighting for. Hell is necessary for accountability, yes. But don't miss, guys, it's, it really motivates us fighting for the good. Now, at this point in Jesus' teaching, we go, yikes, this talk of hell and things like that is scary stuff. And some of us might even say, look, I got to admit, when it comes to this whole leadership thing and influencing people spiritually, I have not done a good job. I've not done well in the home, in work, or even in church. If this applies to me, what do I do? Well, our gospel hope is this. Jesus Christ ended up on the outside of Jerusalem hanging on a cross and experienced Gehenna for us in the wrath of God. If you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, if you trust that Jesus experienced hell and the wrath of God for you personally on that cross, there, and, and you even recognize there's no way you can save yourself from hell and your best efforts you will be saved from wrath. You will be embraced in love. You see, Jesus went through Gehenna and defeat on the cross for us once and for all, and that is our hope. Here's the thing, though. With faith comes something that's really radical. When you trust in Christ alone, he's calling you to something else, and he points us to that radical path of following him in verse 43 of our text. Look at that with me. It says this, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, those of you paying attention to your kind of verse, versification in the text here, you'll note that there are some missing verses in our text and you should know it's a manuscript copying thing, but we have very strong confidence that what you're seeing is, is, is really the, what was originally written by Mark. Having said that, though, the larger point is this. Notice how Jesus moves from talking about causing others to sin to what causes us to sin. How do we keep from causing others to sin? Well, Jesus says, start with yourself in humble chainsaw repentance. Back in 1974, Toby Hooper came out with a horror film called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's about a family that falls prey to a group of cannibals while they make their way to an old homestead. It was roughly based on the historical events of a serial killer, apparently. 
But what was fascinating about this film was that it gave birth to an entire genre of movies called slasher films. Slasher films tend to use power tools as murder weapons. <laughs> but here's what I would tell you today. When it comes to sin and worldliness, Jesus is advocating a slasher lifestyle because he is hunting down our sin with a call to chainsaw repentance. Now, real quickly, I want to tell you, I didn't come up with chainsaw repentance metaphor. I get it from a, a really gifted preacher in the PCA named Joe Nobinson. But I find it is an apt description of what Jesus is talking about using hyperbole here to describe the radical nature of following him. I mean, chainsaw repentance is deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. In other words, you've got to give up something to gain something. And Jesus is illustrating this by talking about cutting off body parts. Now, this is so important to Jesus, this chainsaw repentance idea, that he says it three times using three different and crucial body parts with amputation imagery. Can you imagine losing a hand? Can you imagine losing a foot? Can you imagine losing an eye? It would be hard to do life, but Jesus is saying, hey, that's way better than if you actually kept that thing that causes sin on you. you got to know, though, this isn't just a call to cut off in repentance. It's actually a call to embrace Christ anew and get new life. You see, chainsaw repentance always goes with faith. Faith and repentance go together. We have a, a repentant faith and, and a believing repentance. They go together in the, the, the scriptures. So that when you trust in Christ for your salvation, guess what you do? You crank up the chainsaw. You crank it up. That's what you do. What's this got to do with relationships? with how we do life with one another. Well, here's the thing. Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor, and even beyond these walls, as yourself. I'm here to tell you, you're never going to love like Jesus wants until you start practicing chainsaw repentance, until you cut off the way you do relationship in sinful, worldly ways, and put on the new life that Jesus teaches you in how to love. Chainsaw repentance is putting off the old and putting on the new so that we can have life-giving relationships with God and with people. Now, some of us here aren't familiar with all this repentance language that I'm using, and it, it is an old word, so let me dig down a little further. What is repentance? Well, it's another word for radical personal change. It isn't just a slight adjustment or an improvement or an add-on to life. It is an upside-down change, or to use the language of scriptures, it is a turn where you're walking in one direction away from God towards the idols and gods of this world and take a turn and follow Christ alone. That's what repentance actually looks like. It, 
and if you'll indulge me, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it this way. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner does with grief and hatred of sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You hear that? Turning 180 degrees to a new life of obedience and following Jesus, of cutting off the old and pursuing something new. Now let me be clear what repentance isn't. The common American and evangelical assumption is that repentance means I just say I'm sorry to God or to people. Let me be clear, saying sorry or confession of sin is good, but that's just a piece of repentance. Real chainsaw repentance not only feels bad for sin, feels even shame for sin, and actually confesses sin, it hates it. It hates it. It says, what have I done to you, Lord? And what have I done to this person in my life or these people in my life? I don't want to do this anymore. This is gross. This is not the way to live. I want to follow your way. and So I need you to surgically cut this out of my life like Aaron Ralston cut his arm off in Utah in 2003. He cut his arm off to live. And I want your life more than my sin. Now, here's the beauty of this kind of intentionality of getting rid of sin. On the other side of cutting off sin, Jesus is waiting with more felt forgiveness, more of a new way of life. And let me unpack that a little, more felt forgiveness. Many of us here haven't felt the grace and forgiveness of the Lord for a long time. And here's why. You haven't paid attention to your sin and actively repented. You haven't said, Jesus, my sin's gross. I don't want to live this way anymore. Deliver me. See, the best relationships with God and people have a life of ongoing repentance on a regular basis of ongoing change. Something I tell couples, and I've had to learn the hard way in my own marriage, is this. For two people to change, in a, for a relationship to change, two people have to change. That's what's necessary for authentic change. And boy, have I learned that the hard way. 20 years ago, my marriage went through a really serious struggle. My defensiveness, or let me put it this way, my hard-heartedness towards my wife just kept coming through and finally came to a head and was revealed. You got to remember, I was the kind of guy who responded to claims of, Dean, you're being a little defensive right now with, I'm not being defensive. So I asked the Lord to help me see it and to grow to hate it. And over the years, he's worked on me and he softened my hardness. Over the years, I've realized that he actually loves me and wants to break through that hardness with his love through the cross. And I've experienced forgiveness in my marriage, not only from Elizabeth, but even the felt forgiveness of my Lord for me. And i got to tell you, this whole defensiveness thing, I'm still in process. But the Lord has changed me because I was willing to let him do surgery and chainsaw repentance. It's taken years. 
Glory to him alone for any change that's come in me. Let me ask you today, what about you gets in the way of loving relationships with the Lord or even with others? Is it control that squishes others? Is it busyness that avoids people? Are you going, as my Gen Z friends say, goblin mode, which is a way of being overindulgent to the point of doing damage? Have you been censorious in ongoing attempts to prove your right? Do you struggle with defensiveness like me? Jesus is saying, let me kill it off. Actively take in the gospel. Seek ways to cut it out of your life. And here's the thing. If it's affecting relationships, you can't do this by trying harder on your own. You have to do it in relationship with the Lord fundamentally, but also the Lord working through the Holy Spirit in the community of the church. You need encouragement and accountability to change and chainsaw repentance. You need church. No wonder Jesus concludes with these final verses in verse 49. Look at what he says with me there. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt is lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty? Again, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus has talked about the dangers of causing others to sin. He's hit home what it means to practice chainsaw repentance on our own sin. Now he tells us that God will salt us in a way that will affect how we do relationships with others. And first thing you got to ask is, what in the world is being salted by fire? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> well, the imagery here is from the Old Testament, where priests were told to salt all of the sacrifices before they offered them to the Lord in fire. <clears throat> they would take grain or animal sacrifices, put salt on it, and give it to the Lord. Of course, there's a big difference. We don't do sacrifices anymore. Christ has fulfilled that command. But what we do differently now is, is this. Romans 12.1 says we should offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. That's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is commanding us to have salt in ourselves as sacrifices to him in order to love Jesus is saying that God will bring even temporal judgments on all men, everyone in this life, especially when he's teaching us how to love. What am I saying? Well, we're all going to go through suffering of the trials of life. 1 Peter 1 says as much, though now for a little while, while it, if necessary, you've been grieved by previous trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire. That's what's happening, being salted by fire. As we go through hardships, but God has a larger purpose in it. He is making us more holy in everything. In those trials, our relational habits with God and with people are revealed, are they not? I'm most revealed 
whenever things get hard, and then you just really see what Dean Faulkner's about. Suffering and trouble, sometimes severe, are redeemed by God so much that we learn about ourselves and we learn about our community. Jesus is saying that trouble comes to everyone, and particularly believers, but we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices in chainsaw repentance when those things are revealed about us. Now, let me be clear. Trouble does not necessarily come to us as punishment. Sometimes we want to quickly tie our suffering to some sin or behavior. That is not always the case. Sometimes it is in temporal consequences, but not always. But even the just go through suffering and are revealed. Such was Christ. Going all the way to the cross, suffering in just profound ways, even on the cross, where he was revealed in all his glory and his love and his justice and everything. We see him so clearly. And he is calling us today to more humility, to more humility so that we have a constructive impact of love on our community. Suffering was part of Christ's story. It's part of our story where we're salted with the fire of it, and yet Jesus in the process is doing something. Let me put it this way. Jesus was salted with fire on the cross so that God's salty fire would produce salty disciples like you and me. What's the result of that? When God is growing us and even testing us and revealing us so that we'll practice chainsaw repentance, what's well, peace? You notice that last little thing in our verses here? He said, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What an interesting conclusion to all this hell talk is he's talking about peace. A peace that is born of a relationship with him where we have turned to him and are learning his way of doing love. A peace that is born where when we get in struggles with each other in marriages or uh, with our kids, or yeah, even here at church, we're going to Jesus first and we're trying to let him love us and instruct us on how to love well and resolve our differences in reconciliation. Don't miss that. Jesus is the light and the salt that we need to do relationships and to do community together. Real peace comes from him because he's the peacemaker who makes peace between us and God and even between each other. When we gather around him and follow him in faith, when we practice chainsaw repentance, even in our conflicts, we're going to find that he's teaching us how to love in ways we have never loved before. So my question today is this. What relationships are you struggling with today? Work relationships, family or marriage, with your kids? Go low. Practice chainsaw repentance with salt and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have just gone through a very challenging teaching from you. And we admit, Lord, that it is, it is a challenge to follow you and to even repent 
But we pray that you would convince us yet again of the beauty of repentance and the fruit of that in life-giving relationships with you and with others. I pray for any who don't know you today, who are here and are wrestling with a lot of what I've probably said here. I ask you, Lord, to convince them that you are one who is committed to bringing peace because you went outside the city and were cursed for them once and for all. I pray for those of us who, don't, who already know you, maybe have walked with you for years, or haven't felt that experience of your grace, that we would be, like Alcoholics Anonymous, take a fearless moral inventory of ourselves and see, Lord, what you want to heal and grow in us. Lead us, Lord, to this life of turning to you, not just individually, but in our families and together as a church. We can't do this without you. Thank you for the cross that makes it all possible. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen.